Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, the General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly podcast episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and related CII advocacy activities in connection with the administration's initiative to reform the U.S. financial regulatory system. This update covers the period from September 1st to October 1st. So let's get started. First with Congress. On September 11th, the House Financial Services Investor Protection Entrepreneurship and Capital Markets Subcommittee, chaired by Carolyn B. Maloney of the 12th District of New York, held a hearing to examine private market exemptions as a barrier to IPOs and retail investment. The hearing highlighted the recent growth in private markets. The subcommittee memorandum for the hearing explained that private markets have grown significantly in recent years and are now more than double the size of the public markets. In 2018, issuers raised roughly $2.9 trillion of capital through exempt offerings compared to only $1.4 trillion through public offerings. In her testimony, hearing witness Dr. Elizabeth D. Fontenay of Duke University School of Law said that exemptions in the Jobs Act of 2012 and historically low borrowing costs have driven growth in the private markets. She noted that the excess of capital in the markets was causing a number of troubling trends, including a shift in bargaining power from investors to founders, reflecting the rise of dual-class stock structures. Similarly, in her testimony, hearing witness Renee M. Jones, professor of law and associate dean for academic affairs at Boston College of Law, raised concerns about the use of dual-class stock by many startup companies and unicorn initial public offerings. Ms. Jones requested that Congress should direct the Securities and Exchange Commission to study the implications of this trend and make recommendations for reform. Ms. Jones also indicated that one proposal that deserves consideration is a sunset provision for supervoting shares after a set period of time. The subcommittee also discussed legislation, including legislation that would allow the Securities and Exchange Commission to approve a venture exchange, which is a new category of securities exchange that would only trade small public company securities, provided the securities are subject to state oversight and additional ongoing disclosures. The subcommittee also considered six draft bills, including legislation that would require the Securities and Exchange Commission to conduct an impact study before proposing or adopting any change to a rule regarding either exempt offerings or reporting requirements for public companies. On September 18th, the House Financial Services Committee, chaired by Maxine Waters of the 43rd District of California, favorably reported to the full House 12 financial services bills including legislation that would require publicly traded companies to disclose their policies on whether senior executives or shareholders bear the costs of paying the company's fines and penalties. Legislation that would clarify that the Securities and Exchange Commission may obtain equitable remedies that are not subject to the statute of limitations, including disgorgement in the amount of any unjust enrichment. Legislation that require public companies to disclose certain environmental, social, and governance metrics which the Securities and Exchange Commission would be required to establish in a rule and legislation that would direct the Securities Exchange Commission to issue a rule requiring public companies to implement policies and procedures that are reasonably designed to prohibit officers and directors from trading company stock after the company has determined that a significant corporate event has occurred and before the company has filed a Form 8K. That bill, H.R. 4335, the 8K Trading Gap Act of 2019, has been publicly supported by CII. 
in an April letter earlier this year to Chair Maloney of the Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets Subcommittee, we indicated that we generally supported the bill because we believe, consistent with related empirical evidence, that the bill could enhance investor confidence in the markets and benefit long-term investors. Our April letter also noted that it's been reported that Securities Exchange Commission Chairman Jay Clayton has stated that it was wrong for executives to make money based on significant non-public information during the 8K trading gap, and that he liked the concept of a rule that would prohibit trading during that period. More recently, H.R. 4335 was discussed in connection with a CII podcast entitled Insider Trading Research with Professors Samana Riff, Joseph Schroeder, and Daniel Taylor. On that podcast, Professor Taylor, Associate Professor of Accounting at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, expressed support for H.R. 4335. He believes, consistent with empirical research, that the bill would improve internal controls and policy and procedures surrounding opportunistic insider trading, and that those controls and policy and procedures would improve corporate governance at public companies to the benefit of long-term investors. On September 19th, the Senate Appropriations Committee favorably reported to the full Senate by a vote of 31 to 0 its fiscal year 2020 financial services and general government appropriations bill. That legislation would, among other measures, fund the Securities and Exchange Commission at $1.767 billion, or approximately $10 million, over the Commission's fiscal year 2020 budget request, including $11 million for the potential relocation of the Commission's New York Regional Office. The bill did not approve the riders contained in the House Appropriations Bill that would have prevented the Securities and Exchange Commission from using funds for current rulemaking projects related to shareholder proposals and proxy advisory firms. On September 24th, the House Financial Services Committee held a Securities and Exchange Commission oversight hearing featuring testimony from Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Jay Clayton and Commissioners Robert Jackson, Hester Peirce, Elad Roseman, and Allison Lee. At the hearing, committee chair Maxine Waters raised concerns about stock buybacks and loopholes in the securities laws that corporate insiders are taking advantage of. And she said that she believes the SEC needs stronger tools to protect investors and punish bad actors. Ranking minority member Patrick McHenry of the 10th District of North Carolina argued that under Chairman Clayton's leadership, the Securities Exchange Commission is focused on long overdue reforms that focus on capital formation initiatives that benefit Main Street investors, and that the Security Exchange Commission's renewed commitment to revitalizing our public capital markets through increased capital formation could not come at a more appropriate or crucial time. With respect to proxy issues, Chairman Clayton commented at the hearing that our proxy plumbing is not where it should be, noting that regulators should be able to know that where there is an election, the votes that are being cast are indeed representative of the number of shares and the ownership of those votes. With respect to ownership thresholds governing the submission of shareholder proposals, Chairman Clayton said he does not like that 25 or 30 percent of the proposals are from a handful of people and noted that in his ideal world, a revised threshold would allow access for people who are long-term investors in a company and have a meaningful stake, but a meaningful stake at a personal level. Chairman Clayton also stressed that he's not looking to keep investors from being able to make proposals and that the commission is looking at the resubmission thresholds more closely than the initial thresholds as they were set at a time when the mail was how we communicated.
In response to questions from Representative Lance Good of the 5th District of Texas, SEC Commissioner Roseman referenced future rulemaking on proxy advisory firms. He called the SEC's August interpretation that proxy advice generally constitutes solicitation under federal proxy rules an important first step to ensure proxy advisory firms act in the best interests of investors. Moving now to recent events at the Securities Exchange Commission. On September 5th, the Securities Exchange Commission's Investor Advisory Committee approved a set of four recommendations that include requiring end-to-end confirmation of proxy votes. The panel also called on the SEC to require participants in the voting system to cooperate on a regular basis to reconcile ownership and voting information. In addition, the Investor Advisory Committee asked SEC staff to conduct two studies. One would delve into the reasons many investors prefer to remain anonymous to the companies in their portfolios. The other study would cover the extent to which share lending contributes to voting errors and whether its effect on voting entitlement is disclosed to investors. The panel's last recommendation asked the Securities and Exchange Commission to adopt its proposed universal proxy rule with some modest changes. Finally, the Investor Advisory Committee said it does not believe that the proxy voting system will be improved without SEC intervention. On September 6th, the staff of the Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Corporation Finance announced that in connection with the 2020 proxy season, it may decline to state a view on some company requests to omit shareholder proposals and in some cases may provide a verbal response only to proponents and companies. The SEC said in its announcement that the division will continue to monitor correspondence and provide informal guidance to companies and proponents as appropriate and will issue a response letter where it believes doing so would provide value. In the announcement, the division indicated that it will also continue to request analysis from the board when a company seeks to exclude a shareholder proposal from its proxy materials using arguments related to ordinary business and economic relevance. The announcement also stated that in cases where the staff declines to state a view on a particular request, that will not signal that the proposal must be included in the proxy statement. In such circumstances, the staff is not taking position on the merits of the arguments made, and the company may have a valid legal basis to exclude the proposal. The announcement concludes by reminding companies and shareholders that they still have the option to seek formal binding adjudication on the merits of the issue in court. On September 19th, the Council of Institutional Investors and four other investor organizations wrote to the Securities Exchange Commission in response to the September 6th announcement. The letter expresses concerns about the proposed changes to the SEC's process, including the view that such changes could make the SEC's no-action process less transparent. The letter also expressed the view that the upshot could be more uncertainty about the SEC's views and more litigation and increased financial burdens on proponents, especially smaller and individual investors. The letter was jointly signed by CII, Ceres, the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, the Shareholder Rights Group, and USCIF. Earlier on September 17th, the Council of Institutional Investors joined three other organizations to petition the Securities Exchange Commission to require transparency on funding for consolidated market data. More specifically, the petition asked the SEC to require that the self-regulatory organizations that manage three joint industry plans under which securities information processors, or SIPs, collect and disseminate consolidated equity market data should publicly disclose basic information about, one, the funds collected from users under the plans, and two, how those funds are used. The petitioners, in addition to CII, are the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, the Investment Company Institute, and the Managed Funds Association. 
The letter also shares the view of CII and the other organizations that there is almost a complete lack of transparency about exchange, proprietary, and SIP market data and connectivity revenues and related costs. The letter also expresses the view that the disclosures requested in the petition are necessary for stakeholders to be able to evaluate the appropriateness of SIP fees in general and how the plan participants are managing the SIPs. In other recent corporate governance news, the Council of Institutional Investors 501c3 sister organization, the CII Research and Education Fund, recently published a guide to the leading reporting frameworks for company practices related to sustainability. This concise report, written with chief investment officers in mind, aims to improve corporate transparency around environmental, social, and governance practices that are relevant to investors. The guide focuses on four of the most widely used ESG frameworks. Those are the Climate Disclosure Project, the Global Reporting Initiative, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. We believe the report will provide CIOs of pension funds and other investors a basic understanding of the leading frameworks for reporting corporate ESG practices. On September 4th, the Council of Institutional Investors sent a letter to the board of Peloton Interactive, Inc. Our letter requested that Peloton adopt either a one-share, one-vote capital structure or change the sunset provision in its governing documents to ensure equal voting rights for all classes of common stock by no later than the seventh anniversary of its IPO. In a new front on the Council of Institutional Investors' advocacy efforts with respect to multi-class stock with unequal voting rights, on September 13th, CII sent letters to the Delaware State Bar Association and the American Bar Association asking the organizations to adopt amendments to help limit the number of companies opting for multi-class stock structures with differential voting rights. The Delaware letter asked the state bar to propose an amendment to Delaware General Corporation law that would require newly public dual-class companies to convert to a single-class capital structure within seven years unless shareholders voting on a one-share-one-vote basis approved extending the dual-class structure. More than one-half of all U.S. companies are incorporated in Delaware. Our petition to the American Bar Association asks for similar amendments to the Model Business Corporation Act, which governs many other U.S. companies. The changes CII requested both in the Delaware letter and the letter to the ABA would not affect existing dual-class companies. Both letters explained CII's view that it is a mistake to permit long-lasting or permanent multi-class structures at public companies that may do harm to both individual companies and the reputation of the U.S. capital markets well beyond the time horizon that is reasonably foreseeable by investors. On September 17th, the Council of Institutional Investors General Members approved an overhaul of CII's policy on executive compensation. The revamped policy urges public companies to dial back the complexity of pay plans for top executives and set longer periods for measuring performance for incentive pay. It also cautions against the pitfalls of performance vesting awards and encourages companies to explore adopting simpler plans comprised of salary and restricted shares that vest over five years or more. The new policy recommends that companies consider barring the CEO and CFO from selling stock awarded to them until after they depart to ensure management prioritizes the company's long-term success. 
The policy also indicates that performance vesting share plans can work well for some companies, but recent studies suggest they may not provide a strong enough connection to long-term company performance on a broad level and may use goals and metrics that can be numerous, overlapping, flexible, and hard to understand. That completes my corporate governance and financial regulation update. If you have any questions or comments regarding any of the issues I highlighted, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Or give me a call. My number is 202-822-0800. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.